Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We are looking at verses 45 through 48 this morning. We're looking at a passage that is very well known, probably one that you see pictures of in your Sunday school books growing up, and it's a it's a passage and a story, and it's an event that took place in history that demonstrates, well, a lot of emotion. There's some emotion at play here. Now, if you were a fly on the wall in our home just over the past week or so, you would see an array of emotion. Just, just hanging out in our home, no one knows you're there, you're looking around, you're going to see a ton of emotion. You'll see, you'll see laughter, right? You'll see tears, you'll see joy, you'll see, you'll see pain, you'll see rage, right? You're going to see some stomping of the feet, you're going to see love, you'll see passion, fear, anxiety, grumpiness, excitement, and that's just looking at me. It's been a week. It's been a week. The, the thing about emotions, though, is that it's very, very telling. Emotions are very, very telling. They, they tell a story of what's going on on the inside, Emotions are the things we wear on the outside, and the way we show our emotions are very telling of what's going on on the inside. They always speak very loudly of what's in the heart, what makes us sad, right? What, what, what makes us joyful tells us what we love. It kind of, it's kind of a, a flag, if you will, to what we're passionate about. And that which makes us angry reveals what's in the heart. It reveals our desires. When we go to God's Word... When we go to God's Word, we don't go just to understand more about God. We go to God's Word to understand the heart of God. We go to God's Word to, to look at the mind and heart of God, into the heart of our Creator. This is why we want to study the passages that we're studying today and last Sunday and next Sunday and on Wednesdays and on Tuesdays because we want to know the heart of God. What makes him happy? What makes God happy? What, what grieves the Holy Spirit? What grieves him? What enrages him? Well, today we will look at a passage that reveals God's desire. His desire for true worship. True worship. We look into the heart of Jesus today. We look into the heart of our Savior and we see what truly angers him. Namely, false worship. False worship. This is our main point this morning. If you have a handout, uh, you're going to see main point, and then on the back of that handout, you're going to see some passages that we're going to be going through today. If you don't have a handout yet, there are some back on the back table right over here. They're very helpful. But the main point this morning is that God's temple must be a place of right worship. God's temple must be a place of right worship. True worship. So let's pray as we go to God's word this morning that he would reveal his heart not just about him but who he is, how he feels and that we would align our feelings with his, our emotions with his, our hearts with his. That he would do that by his spirit. Let's go to him and ask him for that this morning. Father, it is a joy and a privilege to, to worship you 
I pray, God, that as we sing the songs we sang, God, that they were, they were sung out from the heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would receive it with joy, that it would be like a fragrant aroma to you, that you would receive it, and that it would be a joy to you and a joy to us to worship you who are worthy of praise and honor. You're worthy of it. You're worthy of more than a song. At the minimum, you're worthy of a song. Your worth, Lord, we want to understand and we want to value and we want to glorify. Show us, Lord. Show us. Open our eyes. Let your words speak. Give us ears to hear this morning. We desire fellowship with you. We long to be where you are. Behold your glory. We ask God that you would do that miracle in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you should be in uh, verse 45 of Luke 19. It says this, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, it is written in my house, shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. If you remember back in Luke 9, Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem, meaning he was determined to get to Jerusalem. The whole purpose for which the Son of God, the eternal God, the eternal Son had entered into creation, the whole purpose for which he came was in Jerusalem, meaning his death, meaning to make atonement for sin. And he had set his face towards Jerusalem. As we saw last week, Jesus finally made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy and he was going to begin to fulfill the prophecy he gave us in Luke 18, which was his death. And the events would begin to take place one by one by one. The dominoes would begin to fall and his death was sure to come. It was, if you remember, uh, it was Passover week. It was Passover week when he came in and the Passover lamb had arrived. The people were trying to inaugurate him as, as king. They were inaugurating him as king. They were claiming him as the Messiah, but not the Messiah according to God. They were claiming him to be the Messiah according to their own liking. It was a Messiah that they had fashioned up in their own mind. They saw a man who could feed 5,000 people with just a couple of fish and some bread. They saw a man who could raise the dead. He could heal the sick. Imagine what this man could do as king. We, there would be no army that could stop us. Are you kidding me? This guy can feed us. He can heal us. And if someone kills us, he can raise us from the dead. Rome's in trouble. Rome's in big, big, big trouble. Here comes our king. But they missed it. What they thought they would have for peace, Jesus reminds them, as Doug said last week, that there is no peace. There's no peace, no true peace without peace with God. And there's no peace with God without the cross. There's no peace with God without the cross. And in fact, we are days away 
We are entering into Jerusalem and we are days away from his crucifixion. But the leaders of Israel, they would ultimately reject Jesus. The people would ultimately reject Jesus as the way of peace with God. And Jesus therefore proclaims judgment on them and their temple. This is all the verses leading up to our text today. That God would... God would judge them and their temple, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesy almost 600 years earlier. As they resurrected idols in the, in the temple of God, Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied that destruction would come to them, and Jesus would proclaim, just like them, that judgment and prophecy, that judgment would come to these people in this temple for the same reasons. They would share the same fate as their fathers. Why? Because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation. They, that word recognize, it means they didn't understand. It's the word we understand for, for know or gnosko. It's a common word we use a lot, but it just means they didn't grasp. They couldn't grasp it or comprehend the time or the season of Emmanuel. The time or the season of God with us. And why couldn't they recognize it? This is key. The reason why they couldn't recognize it is because they were blinded. Blinded by what? What would blind them from seeing God in the flesh as he was foretold to come? Idolatry. It's the same thing that blinds all of us. Our desires, our fleshly desires, our, our longings that are not of God but of other things that cause us to suppress what we know to be true because we want what we want. It was idolatry. They had spent so much time worshiping false gods. They had spent so much time worshiping false gods, namely false gods of the heart, that they couldn't and wouldn't recognize the true, the one true God that was right in front of them. They were blinded by their idolatry. And so what does Jesus do about this? He's got a few days left in his earthly ministry. How is he going to spend it? He's driven to go confront this idolatry in the temple. He's compelled to go confront this idolatry in the temple. So our first point this morning is this. The glory of God, the glory of God returns in righteous wrath against false worship. The glory of God returns in righteous wrath against false worship. Verse 45 begins with Jesus entered the temple. Now some quick context here. The, all three synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three synoptic gospels tell this event. All three of them. John gives a, gives a similar event early on in Jesus' ministry. So it's widely accepted that there was two, at a minimum, two cleansings of the temple. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one at the end. John's account kind of gives the idea that Jesus was just entering the temple and then he, he sees what's going on, gets a whip, and starts clearing the house. Like he fashions a whip out of rope and he just starts cleaning the house. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account seems to give the details of he was going there with a mission on purpose to do this. This was not a, just a kind of a walking in. This was intentional. This was intentional, and we should not miss this. We should not miss this. When it says Jesus entered the temple, we should hear God entered his 
temple. This is his house. To help you understand that, the idea that, that God entered the temple, meaning that this was his, to be his place of kind of residence, if you will. The temple, when it was first designed, was, was a dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant. There was a dwelling place of the Ten Commandments of the law, and it was the place where God would dwell. And he would actually manifest himself there in the Shekinah glory, which was like, like, like a cloud of smoke that would indicate his presence with them, with his people in the temple. It is where he was to be revered. It was a place to, where God was to be revered. It was a place where God was to be worshipped. It was a place where the law was kept. Literally, the tablets were kept there, and they also were to be loved, cherished, and obeyed because you loved the law giver. It was a place to revere, love, and worship God, and therefore obey his commands. Ezekiel 10.4, if you go all the way back to Ezekiel 10 verse 4, he tells us that the glory departed from the temple. This Shekinah glory, this presence of God departed from the temple because of their heinous disobedience. They did not love God, they did not revere God, they did not treasure God, and it came out in false worship of other gods, and the glory had left the temple, Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, and as we remember a few years ago, we talked about in Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple was rebuilt, but the Shekinah glory never came back. The Shekinah glory never came back. But today, in this passage, in this passage, during Passover, God enters his temple. God enters his temple. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Christ, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness of deity dwells, meaning the full weight of glory of the one true God dwells in Jesus Christ in bodily form. And so God, in his fullness, enters the temple. The God who left comes to his temple today, and he comes with a purpose. He comes with a purpose. Just like the woman at the well just like Zacchaeus that we talked about a few weeks ago. He doesn't, he doesn't meet them on accident. Jesus is intentional in everything he does, and he comes to the temple on a mission. Mark's account would tell us that Jesus saw what was happening in the temple the day prior. Mark's account says that as Jesus entered into Jerusalem at, during his triumphant entry, it says that he saw what was happening in the temple but because it was late, he departed to Bethany. And then the next day, he enters the temple. So we can picture it. He comes in. He sees what's happening. Not much has changed since early on in his ministry. He goes to Bethany, gets some rest, stores up some wrath, comes back, and wreaks havoc. Does business in the temple. So he was on mission, and I believe that he was on mission to do a few things. He was on mission to display his authority as king. He was on mission to display his authority as king, as the one in charge of what happens in the temple. The king was in charge of what happens in the temple, along with the priest. He wants to display himself as king, but also as God, who demands true worship. 
And he wants to display himself as Messiah, as the one who will restore right worship, proper worship in the temple of God. We continue in verse 45. It says that he began to drive out. He began to drive out. This means throw out, like boot people, like kick people out. This, began, this means he began kicking everyone out of the temple. Matthew and Mark's account explained that Jesus began overturning tables of money changers. He's knocking over seats of those of people who are selling doves. He's just, he's just going, he's mad. He's not happy. This is not a peaceful protest. This was no peaceful protest. This was righteous, God-honoring wrath. This was righteous, God-honoring wrath on display. And just to kind of give us some context here, Jesus didn't kick out like a few meager, sheepish old men who couldn't defend themselves. This wasn't like a handful of like five or six dudes that were like, okay. okay. There was a lot going on. To start, this, this event took place where the booths and the tables would be set up. It took place in the court of the Gentiles. So there was different courts within the temple. You had the court of the Gentiles. Then you had the court of like the women that could gather in closer to the Holy of Holies. And then you got one where just the men could gather. This was the outer court where the Gentiles could be there. Gentile converts could be there. So this would logically be the place where there were the most people. The most people. So it makes sense. This is where we want to put some booths. This is where we want to put some booths. There would be a lot of booths. The, the estimate uh, of the time would be that there would be over 200,000 people in Jerusalem during the time of Passover. Over 200,000 people, so many people that they would have to be sleeping in tents around the city or even just sleeping in, out in the outskirts like Bethany. There just wasn't enough room for everybody. There was that many people coming into Jerusalem for Passover, and each and every one of those people would have to provide a sacrifice. For Passover, they would have to have an offering. And if you couldn't provide a sufficient or spotless offering, well, one would be provided for you at a not-so-small fee. The temple was run by the high priest. The temple was run by the high priest, which at the time were Annas and Caiaphas. This was their business. This was a business of extortion. I assure you, no one came in with their own sacrifice that was worthy according to their standards. And so, of course, they would say, sorry, not spotless enough, got to buy one of ours. Sorry, not spotless enough, got to buy one of ours. And they would charge up to 10 times the fair amount. The, the 10 times the fair amount. And so it was, it was theft, it was extortion, it was heinous in every way. According to God's law, according to God's standards, there's so much that they were doing that would make Jesus angry. Almost every person that would come would have to buy or purchase an offering. And of course, they're coming from other cities, other towns, other provinces, and so they'd have their own currency. So of course, their currency won't work, so they've got to do some exchanging of currency, and so we can provide that for you too, and that's not cheap either. This was big business. This was big business. There were masses and masses of people. There were masses and masses of tables in order to make as much money as they possibly could make. 
And so the clearing of all these people, I believe, was a very miraculous event. It, was a, it had to be a miraculous event. Imagine how many tables were there, and it says Jesus cleared the house. I, I don't know if this was like some sort of superhuman strength that Jesus explained, or that Jesus portrayed, some kind of like mass amount of superhuman strength that would cause these men who would probably fight for their tables, they would fight for their money, they would fight for their position, but they were gone. Jesus cleared them out. I don't know if it was that or if his words were just so piercing. His words were so piercing or so authoritative that these men couldn't help but just bow and, and just run like wolves with the tails between their legs. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how he did it, but I know this. Jesus cleared that house. He cleared that house and he did it with absolute authority. What is it that you believe that enraged Jesus? What is it that caused him to put this on display? It was that God was dishonored. God was dishonored. God was unglorified as he was being disobeyed and misrepresented. God was unglorified as he was being disobeyed and misrepresented. This is what righteous anger looks like. If you want to know, what does it mean to have righteous anger? I hear that question a lot. This, this is what it looks like. This is good, righteous God-honoring anger, if emotions represent what we want, and anger is an emotion that is rooted in what should be but isn't, then we can see that Jesus is angered and that God should be worshipped. God should be revered. God should be considered holy and worthy of praise and honor, and he's not. And that angers him. Righteous anger is rooted in God's glory. Righteous anger is rooted in God's glory, not ours. Injustice against him, not just us. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of our Savior. This is the heart of God. He is, he is passionate about his own glory. He is passionate about his own glory, and he's passionate for his temple to be a place where his holiness is revered, and put on display. He's passionate about these things. And I'm, I'm pointing, pointing to this continuously. I'm pointing to the heart of Jesus continuously because I think I hear a lot of us say all the time, I, I want the heart of Jesus. I pray for the heart of Jesus. I want Jesus' heart. The heart that loves like Jesus loves is the heart that loves God and his glory above all things. The heart that loves like Jesus loves is the heart that loves God and his glory above all things. This is what it means to be conformed into his image. To be conformed into the image of Christ is to have your heart conformed to his heart. Meaning, I have desires over here, and Jesus has desires here, and they're in conflict. My desires change to be like his. Your will your will will conform to be his will. This is why we go to his word. This is why we study his word, because we desire to know God's heart. 
We want to know how he feels. I want to know how God loves. I want to know what God's passions are. I want to know what his desires are. I want to know what his will is so that my heart, my desires, my passions can be conformed to his because that's where real joy is found when I'm like my God. This is why we go to his word. Because I want to be changed to be like him, not because I want him to become like me. This is why we pray. Not because I want his will aligned with mine, which is usually how we pray. God, do this. God, do this. God, do this. Rather than having my will aligned with his. God, help me to do your will. It's a big difference. It's a big, big difference. We continue in verse 46. Verse 46, he says, we look at what he's saying as he clears the temple. As he's clearing men out, as he's kicking them out, as he's booting them out, he is quoting Scripture. He's quoting Scripture. He's not just saying, get out, get out. No, he's quoting Scripture. So if you want to know by what authority I do these things, I do it by the authority of the Word of the living God. I do it by the authority of the Word. It's the only authority. It's God's authority. It's His Word which happens to be Jesus' very own word. So, of course, what authority would he appeal to? And what does he quote? He quotes passages from Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. He says, as he's kicking them all out, my house should be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. You have made it a robber's den. This is what he's saying as he's turning over tables. My house, my house, my temple is to be a house of prayer. He quotes that from Isaiah 56 in the, in the original passage. It says, my house will be a house of prayer for all people, for all nations, for all people groups. This is the context of Isaiah 56, that the temple of God would be a place of prayer for all people, meaning no more outcast, no more outcast, no more distinctions, just contrite and broken and forgiven people praising, praying, and worshiping God. This was the purpose of the temple. This was the purpose of the temple, namely prayer. Prayer. And at the very heart of prayer is fellowship with God. It is a desire to fellowship with Him, to commune with God. Prayer is worship, isn't it? Prayer is worship. It's crying out to God. It's crying out to Him. It's praising Him. It's confessing sin to God. It's seeking closeness to God. It's finding satisfaction in His love for you. Prayer is... Examples, all of these things. Every time we pray, every time we sing, singing is prayer. It's just in song, and it's praise, and it's confession. Listen, listen, this is, this is what God's desire for Israel was, and for us. God desired that they love and trust his word. God desired that they would love and trust his word, and that in that love and trust, 
obedience would naturally follow. But when they failed to obey, when they failed to trust God, God was gracious with them. He was gracious with them by providing for them a way of atonement to maintain that fellowship. I want to obey God, but I know I'm in my flesh. I will not be able to. So God provides a sacrificial system. That was an act of grace, not just law. That was an act of grace on God's behalf that they might maintain fellowship with him through the sacrificial system. So the purpose of the temple was for fellowship with God through prayer and sacrifice. So what kind of prayers do you think they were offering up as they handed their sacrifice to the priests? What kind of prayers do you think they were offering up? Okay, God, here's my goat. I need a new job. Here's my goat. Probably not. Here's my dove, and could you please heal my back? Probably not. These were sacrifices to make atonement for sin. These were sacrifices to make atonement for sin because I have broken fellowship with God. My sin has separated me from God and I desire to be close to God. These were prayers of repentance. These were prayers of repentance. Prayers of men and women that desired so much. They desired so much to have fellowship with God they would come and bring a sacrifice, trusting, trusting in God's forgiveness that he promised that he would give them through the sacrifice, that I might have fellowship with him again. I so desire fellowship with my creator. This was the heart of those, this was the design of the temple to have a place for people with that kind of heart that desired fellowship with God. They could come and, and repent of their sin, offer sacrifices to make atonement, and be reconciled back to God again, which is what their ultimate desire was. But Jesus saw, today he saw no prayers of repentance. No prayers of repentance, no praise for the forgiveness offered. No pleas of mercy, no desire for changed hearts, no desire for hearts that would be aligned to his will. No, he saw none of it. He saw none of these. No desires for hearts for change, but oh, he did see worship. He saw all kinds of worship. He saw, number one, he saw people worshiping false gods of money, power, prestige, and possessions. He saw people worshiping the false god of money, power, prestige, and possessions. We all worship. We either worship a false God or a true God. In every act and every desire that we fulfill. One aspect of worship, this is one aspect of worship, it is to ascribe worth, it is to ascribe value or worth to something or someone by seeking satisfaction or peace or comfort in it or them. Let me say that again. One aspect of worship is to ascribe worth. Is to ascribe value or worth to something or someone by seeking all of your satisfaction, all of your peace, all of your comfort in it or them. 
When you, when you seek to satisfy yourself or find peace in something or someone, you are worshiping it. You're ascribing worth to it. You're glorifying it. You're magnifying it as valuable for peace. Therefore, all issues are worship issues. All sin is misappropriated worship. Abortion is a worship issue. Theft is a worship issue. Lying is a worship issue. Homosexuality is a worship issue. Sex outside of marriage is a worship issue. Nominal or apathetic Christianity is a worship issue. You are not worshiping the one true God. You're worshiping something else. You're seeking to satisfy something inside of you in something else. All of it is idolatry. All of it is the worship of a God that makes all kinds of promises for satisfaction, but always leaves you empty. This is why they were willing to break God's law. This is why they were willing to steal and break God's law in his very temple. The God who said, thou shalt not steal, and you keep that in the temple. They entered the temple and they stole from everybody because they loved their God. They loved their God of money. You, you become what you worship. You become what you worship. If vain, if you worship a God that is vain, it's vanity, it's empty, it's unfulfilling, it's dead, and you will be vain, empty, unfulfilled, and dead. You become what you worship. And if you are empty, unfulfilled, and dead, then there's, there's really no lengths you might go to to get it, including steal and many other heinous sins in order to be filled or satisfied. There's many temptations that come with emptiness. The one who is filled and satisfied cannot be tempted. And only God can do that for you. Number two. Number two, he saw people worshiping a false Yahweh. Jesus saw people worshiping a false Yahweh. A Yahweh they had conjured up in their minds. One that was okay and content to see people just running through the motions. Anybody know anyone that does that? They make up a God in their minds, one that is not true to Scripture, but one that doesn't contradict you, doesn't challenge you, thinks everything you do is okay. That's my God. My God would never fill in the blank. You've made him up. You've made him up. They had made up a Yahweh. They had made up a, a Yahweh that was content with them just trying to appease him with their sacrifices. Just trying to appease them with their lambs, bulls, and goats, but have no, no concern for sin, no desire for actually fellowshipping with him. And this is the context of Jeremiah 7 that Jesus quotes. That you've made this a robber's den. Namely, that God saw people offering sacrifices to God with no desire for reconciliation. No desire for reconciliation. He saw people who steal, they leave the temple, they go about their lives, they steal, they kill, they commit adultery, and then they have zero repentance in their heart. And they say, here, just take my goat. Go about my life. Here, just take my lamb. That should do it. 
No love for him. No love for him. No fear of God. No reverence of him. Just in every practical way, wanting to bribe him with their expensive goats and their good works. That does not honor God. In fact, it misrepresents him. Again, no grief over sin, no desire for changed hearts to be like God, just running through the motions. This is where the shepherds of Israel, the priests, the Levitical system, the Pharisees, these were the shepherds of Israel, and these were, that, this is, these are the people that were leading the people of Israel towards this kind of religion, a false religion, a false worship of a false Yahweh who is not content with these things. They were leading them to live lives that can look however you want, do whatever you want, live however you want, just so long as you pay God off with a few sacrifices, you'll be okay. By the way, they're pretty expensive. You can buy one right over here. Heinous. Just ridiculous theft and extortion and misrepresentation of who God actually is. God was so unglorified in his very own temple. So this is the point two. That Jesus is the true shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd that leads true worship in the temple. He restores true worship in the temple. Ultimately, Jesus would demonstrate that he is the true shepherd, that he's the better shepherd, and he would cleanse the house of God. He would cleanse the house of idolatry. He would remove the idols, and he would restore proper worship in the temple. Look at verse 47. It says he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Sound teaching, sound doctrine, true gospel back in the, in the temple again. People clinging to God again in the temple. People wanting fellowship with God again in the temple. Hanging on and treasuring his word again. In the temple, Jesus did what the good kings, though there were few, what the good kings of old would do. When they would rise up into power and they would see the idolatry going on in the temple, they would go into the temple, they would clear out the idols, and they would restore the word of God back into the temple, the proper teaching back in the temple, and proper prayer and worship back into the temple. This is what some of the good kings would do when they would rise up into power. And this is exactly what Jesus did. And where we see true worship happening in the temple, we would see reform happen. The people of Israel would change, worship would change, and where we saw false worship, destruction happened. Destruction happened. As we saw with Babylon, destruction came in and destroyed due to false worship. So would Rome now come in, 70 AD, and destroy Israel for their false worship. Yeah, Jesus restored worship in the temple here, but after his ascension, things would just go back to the way they were. 
he would die, he would rise again, and things would just go back to the way they were back in the temple again. Judgment came. Judgment came. But point three. But point three is this, that Jesus builds a new temple. Jesus is building a new temple that worships in spirit and in truth. Jesus is building a new temple that worships in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he would make once and for all supplication for sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty of sin. He took it all on him, on him, on your behalf. For anyone who put their faith in him, he would take on the penalty of sin and wipe the slate clean and then fill you with his righteousness by faith. He would make, in that transaction, he would make it available for you to have fellowship with God in Christ. Fellowship with God was restored again at the cross. No longer will this temple that Jesus just cleared be needed for fellowship with God. No longer will sacrifices be needed to make for forgiveness of sins. Jesus would be the once and for all sacrifice. And Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4 that a day is coming and is now here that we will neither worship on this mountain or at that temple or this mountain or that temple, but we will worship in spirit and in truth. Meaning in heart and in, I'm sorry, mind and in heart. Emotion rooted in truth. Truth illumined by the Holy Spirit. It's not about the place. It's about the person filled with the Spirit of God, who hears the truth and praises. We would put an end to this temple, but Jesus would build a new one. One where the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile would be torn down. No more outer courts. No more distinctions between the courts of the Gentiles, the courts of the women, and the courts of the Jew, Jewish men. There would be no more distinctions all distinctions would be destroyed and the two, the Gentile and Jew, would now become one new man in Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us this in verse 13. It says, But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's every Gentile has been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. That's fellowship. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Skip ahead to 19. So, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, outcasts, if you will, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Of God's household. These are my house, shall be a house of prayer. You are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fit together and growing into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church the church would be the new temple where God would be revered, magnified, 
and worshipped in heart, in mind, and in spirit. The temple made without hands. That would be people. People filled with the Spirit of God. People filled with the Spirit of God and to be a people of prayer and worship regardless of nationality. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. The walls were broke down. Do you remember the main point? Remember the main point this morning, that God's temple must be a place of right worship? I want us to see today that God is just as serious about proper worship in this temple as he was in that one. He's just as serious about proper worship in this temple as he was at the temple in Jerusalem. I'm not talking about this building. This building is not the church. This place is not the church. These walls are not the church. We are the church. We are the church. We don't go to church. We don't go to church. We worship Jesus as the church. We are not consumers. We are active participants in the work of the ministry of proclaiming, heralding, exalting Jesus Christ. And what we do, and what we say, and how we live, we aspire to glorify God. Why? Because He's changed our hearts to love what He loves. That's the work of the church. We are the temple of God. You are. You are. Not the elders, not the evangelist, not the preacher. You are the temple. If Christ dwells in you, if the Spirit dwells in you, you are His temple individually and corporately together. We make up the temple of God. First Peter 2, we'll put it this way, 2 5. He says, You also, as living stones, that's the individual, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Meaning that individually, individually you've been plucked out, made holy, set apart, chosen and placed as a stone in this house. And proper worship is to offer spiritual sacrifices in Christ to God. What are those? Psalm 141 gives us a peek, a hint. It says this, Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call you. And may my prayer be counted as incense before you. Prayer. Prayer. The lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Again, prayer. This is to be an active part and walk of the Christian as a stone in this temple. Our prayers, both individually and corporately or together, are an incense offering to God. It's a fragrant aroma to Him as we display our dependence, our neediness, and our gratefulness to Him for what He has done. 
Are you a person of prayer? Does that mark your life? Psalm 51, 17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Bulls and goats, I don't need them, he says in the verse right before it. What I desire are the true sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a humble, broken, contrite, broken over sin, This is a heart that confesses the sacrifices that God is truly pleased with is the broken spirit. A a believer that is broken over sin, confessing their sin, and then what? Trusting in God to deliver on his promise that he made that their sin would be forgiven in the sacrifice of his son. And then you move forward in worship. This This is the ebb and flow of the Christian life. We run after Jesus, we slip, we fall, we repent, we change, we keep running. Trusting always in God's provision through the Son. The sacrifice that was made on the cross. His Son has paid it. No more bulls and goats. Just people who long for fellowship with God and are dependent on Him for atonement and forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. Romans 11, 36-12-1 would put it this way. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Meaning just rooted in the truth. Rooted in the truth that all things are from God, through God, to God, and are for the glory of God. Then we as kingdom priests are to recognize that our bodies are included in this all things. You have been bought with a price. You belong to him. And you should say, praise God. Because apart from that, I belonged to death. I was a slave only to death, and now I, get to, um, now I get to be a slave to God. My body is a living sacrifice. My mind is a living sacrifice. Have it. Take it. I write an open check. God, do with me as you wish. Take away my desires if they conflict with yours. Take away my dreams if they conflict with yours. I am yours. That is your spiritual Service of worship. That brings him glory. So we are to be a temple of prayer, a temple of confession, a temple that is trusting in God and therefore joyfully and sacrificially conforming our minds to know and obey, and joyfully obey the will of God. So, What is happening here on Sunday mornings in your heart? What's happening here right now on Sunday mornings or on Wednesdays or Thursdays or Tuesdays, whenever we gather together to worship Christ, to study his word, to go before God's word, to look into the heart of God? What's going on in your heart? Is it worship? 
Is it contrite? Is it praise? Do you come with a heart ready to revere, know, and grow in your love for Christ? Do you come ready to receive correction and be changed? Are you ready to be encouraged? You want to be encouraged to do the work of the ministry. You want to be stirred up in order to do, to, di- to obey what you've been disobeying. Is that what you desire? Or are you just here to hand God your weekly lamb? Just to appease him with your attendance? Doing what you need to do. No real desire for repentance. No desire for change or growth or fellowship with him. Fellowship with the body. No zeal. Just running through the motions. Checking a box. On to Monday. On to lunch. It's a question that's ran through my mind and it's hard not to think about this as we were singing today since I wrote this down, but how would you respond? Or how would Jesus respond to our worship? Would he be pleased or angered? Would he be grieved? Or would he receive it with joy? Would he receive it with joy? If, if Jesus were here, like physically, like there was a chair set up and he's just sitting here as we sang and as we, as we prayed and as his word was preached and taught. Would that change anything going on inside of us while we're here? What kind of worship would he see? How would him being here in that seat affect our time this morning? Maybe, would we sing louder? With passion? Would, would seeing him help recognize the value and worth of who he is that we might bubble up in praise that is uncontainable? Would we still chat with our neighbor as the congregate, as our, at our, with our neighbor as the congregation sang praises to him? Right here, would we still just kind of carry on in conversation with our neighbor? Would we continue checking our messages, updating our news feeds, texting our friends? Would we fall asleep as his word was being taught to you? I can tell you, Jesus is here. He is here. His, his spirit is here. He has purchased you and desires for you to grow in your likeness to him and he demands true worship. Not just on Sundays. Not just on Sundays, but all week. Let me submit to you this, that your sanctification, your sanctification, your personal sanctification is his utmost priority. Not your happiness outside of him. Not your career. Not your bank account. Not even your health, your holiness. Your holiness, more than anything, he is concerned for you to be growing in your likeness to him, your desires to be like him, that you would be a temple that is growing in right worship. How's your personal prayer life? 
How, are you conf- how much are you confessing sin to God and to one another? I know it's not easy. But it's right. And it's good to confess to one another. How are you growing in your love of Christ and the gospel and in obedience to all that he has commanded? How are you growing in your desire and in your efforts to make disciples? Are we stagnant? Maybe our worship is stagnant. Also, if you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and you are a stone in the temple or household of God, then your personal sanctification is for the edification of the body, meaning your personal sanctification is not just for you. It's not just for you. Your your personal worship, how you treat your personal temple affects the corporate temple. It has a corporate effect. As a member of this body, I I am, I'm depending on you to... Disciple me. How can you do that if you don't know his word? You're dependent on me to disciple you and others. And how can I do that if I don't know his word? If my heart's not changed, how can I be a, a cog in this machine that helps in efforts of changing yours? What you do affects everybody in this room. What you do Monday through Saturday affects everyone in this room. Your pursuit of holiness affects this body. Imagine building a house and all the stones are being stacked one on another and one is crumbling, half cracked, and we're putting all this weight on top of it. What happens to the temple? It crumbles. Like a team, like a team dependent on each member to do their individual workouts so that come game day, we can all accomplish our goal together. May we take time today Maybe right now, as I'm praying and as we go to communion, to confess our lack of worship. Maybe we've construed a God in our hearts and our minds that is not true, that is, that is willing to accept my apathy. Let's confess that and repent of that and seek the one true God who loves you, gave himself for you, and desires for you to do what you were made to do, which was worship rightly. He is absolutely worthy, is he not, of that worship. Amen.